Heavenly Father, as I studied this, I was mindful of the thought that much of what we're going to cover tonight is probably not going to be difficult to understand, that for many of us who would gather to listen to verse-by-verse teaching, the principles Paul is teaching today are ones that we agree with, we understand, that we're prepared to hear. So, Father, I pray that we have courage as we hear it again tonight, because there's a difference between hearing and doing. And what we're hearing are things, Father, that we agree with, but they also call us to action at times in ways that will bring us into conflict with the enemy or with those who are aligned with him. And sometimes, Father, that will bring us a pause of whether we want to take on the mission you've given us. So I ask, Father, as we study what Paul tells Timothy, to expect in the later days that we might recognize our role in carrying out the very things Paul wrote, as you would appoint. And uh, help us to see that you do that work through us, and so we can, we can step forward in that courage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we spent the last chapter understanding the Bible's qualifications for those who lead in the church. And to summarize that, we learned that the qualifications for overseers and deacons involves aspects of individual character and behavior, things about marriage, or how we run our families, or our temperament or our biblical scholarship, and and so on, all of those traits. And when you take all of what we learned together in chapter 3, the requirements work to ensure that the church is led by men who exemplify the most godly among us. They set the standard at a high level. So not only will those men be more capable in serving because of those qualifications, but then they'll also serve as models for everyone else underneath their care. But buried in those details we'll find there's an even more important purpose for selecting the right kind of leaders. It's a purpose that's very forward-looking, very prophetic. Yet, it is also an ever-present concern in the body. It's a purpose that requires strong, biblically-grounded leaders to confront, and Paul now explains in chapter 4. So, as we move into chapter 4, Paul explains an additional reason, this primary purpose for why strong leaders need to be in place in the church to hold the line in guarding the flock. And that's where we go now. Chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Well, clearly we're on a new topic, though one that is closely related to what we just covered, as I said. Paul introduces a prophecy, and its purpose here is to explain why he told Timothy to be so careful in how they selected leaders in the church. And Paul prefaces his explanation by crediting this prophecy to the Holy Spirit. That's an intriguing comment. Paul's letter to Timothy was written in about the middle or just after the middle of the first century, 50s, 60s A.D. It was probably written then before many of the New Testament works, including most of the Gospels. Perhaps one of them was written by this point, maybe Matthew. Certainly before the book of Revelation was written. And therefore, when Paul says that the Spirit explicitly taught these things of future, he must mean that Paul received this revelation himself by means of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying the Spirit, to make clear this revelation, was not delivered by Christ in his own day, which means it's something the church had not heard yet. And furthermore, Paul uses the adverb explicitly, which is maybe more literally translated clearly, 
in Greek. He says the Spirit clearly says this to emphasize there's no doubt over what the Spirit has provided to Paul. No confusion over this revelation. It was something Paul heard from the Spirit very specifically and clearly. And what did he hear? Well, the Spirit taught expressly that a situation for the church would happen in later times, in later days. Later times is a a reference to the culminating events that will end our present age. Jesus himself in the Gospels spoke about ages, about long periods of history that serve certain purposes in God's plan. And as one of these ages will come to an end, then a new one will begin. One example from the Gospels in Mark chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, notice that, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. You see there Jesus juxtaposes Certain things true today in the present age, and then certain things coming in an eternal age, an age yet to happen. So he's laying these out as one after another in time. Furthermore, as we approach the end of an age, the Bible teaches that the Lord will bring signs to the world to announce the coming of that end, like a two-minute warning in a football game. And Jesus speaks at length in the Scriptures about the things that will come to announce the end of this age. You can learn about those by reading Matthew 24 or Luke 21 the signs of the times. But in this passage, Paul is adding yet another event to the list that the Bible gives us of signs that will announce the end of this age. And so the additional sign that Paul says will mark the end of this age is that some, he says, will fall away from the faith. There are three key words in this little prophecy that I just quoted that we have to understand to understand what he's saying. And we're going to look at each one of these in turn. The first word is some. I think it's a bit misleading, actually, that my translation chose the English word some to describe this group. Because in Greek, the word literally means certain ones. So the word doesn't imply a specific size at all. It, it could be some, but it could be many. It could be most. It's just certain ones. The point is, it's a significant number of some group. The second word we need to understand is faith. I'm going to jump to the last one. Faith. Faith means, in this context, the community of all believers. Specifically, the community of those who have been born again by faith. Simply put, faith means all true believers in the church. Now, it's important to understand this so that when Paul says the faith, he is not referring to those who participate in church. That is, the weekly corporate gathering. That's not the faith. He's speaking of the spiritual body of Christ, which is why he uses the term faith here and not church. Because he's talking about something that is spiritually bound, the faith that is the body of Christ. So we have one group, certain ones, who are not a part of this community of true believers called the faith. Which leads us to the final word, of course, the word fall away. The word in Greek translated fall away means to depart or to withdraw And when you put it together with the other two words that we just talked about, you find this interesting conclusion that at the end of this age, as Paul said, a certain group, perhaps many, will depart from the true faith. They don't necessarily withdraw or depart from the gathering, mind you. They withdraw from the true body of Christ. Now, what does this mean? 
Well, we know from other scripture that one who has truly been born again by faith in Jesus Christ cannot be unborn, cannot revert back to the prior nature. They have become something new by God's work, and that work cannot be undone, for it's not within their control. They didn't obtain it by something they did, and they don't lose it, so to speak, no more than a butterfly coming out of a cocoon can return to being a caterpillar. You don't have control over these things. They've happened to you, the Scripture says. And there's many things in Scripture I could point you to to support that. We're not going to take the time tonight to go through all that. But suffice to say, once someone has become born again, that's where they are for the rest of eternity. A Christian, a true Christian, may fall away from the gathering, or they may fall away from walking with Christ. These are behavioral changes that are possible. But spiritually speaking, they cannot fall away from the faith, from the body of Christ. So the fall away here cannot be a description of someone who would have once been a believer and then somehow no longer is. That's not biblically correct. It's not a possible option for us here. Therefore, those who are falling away here from the faith are those within a certain gathering. They may even still be in the gathering. And yet they are not actually members of that gathering in the spiritual sense. They are not the body of Christ. The falling away does not then describe a removal of bodies from a room. It refers to the absence of the Holy Spirit from those bodies. It describes a growing presence of unbelievers within the gathering that meets and calls itself the church. And you can see this confirmed elsewhere. Elsewhere Paul calls this future falling away of true believers within the church an apostasy, or we sometimes say the great apostasy. In Second Thessalonians 2, Paul explains that the final events of this age, events that usher in the next age, will include an apostasy. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 1, Paul says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So in addressing the fears of the church in Thessalonica that they had suddenly found themselves in the midst of the tribulation, Paul reassures them that no, you are not yet in that period of history. Paul says the tribulation, which he calls the day of the Lord here, the tribulation cannot begin until several things take place first. And among those preceding events, those necessary predecessors to the tribulation, is something Paul calls the apostasy. This is a different Greek word than the one that was used a moment ago in our passage out of 1 Timothy. But it carries a similar meaning. It refers to a rebellion, specifically, against authority. A rebellion against some standard, against some confession. And it's interesting that in 2 Thessalonians, Paul offers the church no explanation for what this apostasy will be. Not in that letter. So we must assume Paul knew that his readers were already familiar with this concept. He must have already taught them. And since we have Paul saying in 1 Timothy that this truth was explicitly taught by the Spirit, all of this would suggest that... Paul has been delivering this teaching everywhere. It's something he is making clear to everyone. I mean, if the Spirit explicitly revealed it to him, we can safely assume he felt obligated to explicitly express this to everyone he met. To sum it up, the Spirit teaches that near the end of this age, the body of Christ, the church, will experience a falling away, an apostasy. The constitution of the gathering itself will begin to change. Where once it held mostly, if not entirely, true believers... At the end of the age, the Spirit says explicitly that a number of those gathered 
will not actually be believers anymore. They will have fallen away from the faith in that sense. The church, quote, church gathering, will consist of some or many or all who do not know the Lord. Obviously, unbelievers have always hung around the edges of the true church. There's nothing new in that. Even in the first century, the church encountered false confessors from time to time who found something attractive about Christian life or Christian experience. Good examples found in Acts chapter 8. Early in the church, you read about a man named Simon the Magician who became fascinated in the movement of the Spirit within the body among believers in Samaria. And when the Spirit came upon these believers in Samaria and Simon sees the manifestation of the Spirit, he asked two apostles, Peter and James, if they would sell him the power that he was witnessing take place within the body. And they rebuked him and they called him out as one who was trying to obtain with money what comes only through a relationship with Christ. And they said that, He was not right with God, that his heart was not right with God. In other words, they named him as an unbeliever and they called him out for his error. So the church has always dealt with this, even from its beginnings, dealt with unbelievers who come alongside us misunderstanding what it means to be Christian and thinking it an association or a confession of some creed, but they've lacked the substance of it. They don't have the spirit moving in their hearts. They've never been born again. And because they're in that state, they don't know what they don't know. They can't even appreciate the fact that what they think they know is not right. They have no point of reference to share with us. That's always been the issue. But Paul says in the later days, the end times, something altogether different is going to start to happen to the church. Instead of a few unbelievers, the last day's church will become an apostate church. Though true believers will remain, the rise of unbelievers within the body will become a serious and persistent problem to the end of this age. Even worse... The Bible says that apostate group within the gathering will perceive itself to be true Christianity. Even as they gather under the banner of Christ, they will remain unaware that they lack the substance of what they claim. Just like Simon, they will seek to obtain illegitimately what can only come by faith. And Jesus talks about that experience. He talks about this coming period in the church when he wrote letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And in his letter to Laodicea, the last of those seven, the city pictures the last day's church and as jesus writes to that city he's describing things that are true for the last days and in that letter he writes this part of what he wrote chapter 3 of revelation verse 14 to the angel of the church in laodicea write the amen the faithful and true witness the beginning of the creation of god says this i know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot i wish that you were cold or hot So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Many of you may know there's a longer teaching on this passage available through our ministry and some videos on end times. But for now, it's enough to see that in Jesus' comments, there's clearly an apostasy taking place within this church. The church, he says, is lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. In other words, the church is straddling a line that in reality cannot be straddled. The community calls itself Christian, but in reality, they do not have saving faith. They are lukewarm in the sense that they look like Christians, hot maybe, But they're actually not Christians, cold. Jesus refers to them as lukewarm in a way of describing this halfway position that doesn't actually exist. And that's why he tells this church that he will spit them out. 
Literally in Greek, he says he will vomit them out. So this so-called church is self-deceived and therefore in jeopardy of eternal judgment. They thought themselves spiritually rich and in need of nothing, as Jesus said. In reality, they needed to receive from Jesus exactly the things they thought they already had, for he alone can provide them, he says. So the church in Laodicea represents the church of the last days. It was both a literal location in its day, but prophetically it also stands as a picture of things to come, and specifically of the last days church. It is an epitome of the falling away from the faith that Paul just described in 1 Timothy. There's a congregation. It's still meeting, maybe even growing, but it lacks the very thing it claims to offer the world. We might ask, how could such a thing even happen in the first place? I mean, how does a group that began with true Christians turn into a group of unbelievers who are blissfully content to congregate under the banner of Christ? How do you get from one to the other? Well, Paul explains that in the next part of verse 1 in 1 Timothy 4. He says it begins with paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. The problem begins where it always does, the enemy. But specifically, those who are fallen, those who have fallen away from the faith, are those who would follow lying spirits, Paul says, or demons. Furthermore, they follow the doctrines or the teachings of these demons. And so there's actually two elements at work here. First, you have these demons themselves who are agents of the enemy working in an unseen way. They're obviously spirit. You can't see them. But they're working to lead unbelievers away from the truth. They create stumbling blocks for unbelievers. They captivate the mind. They control the hearts of unbelievers in a variety of ways. But always, ultimately, it appeals to the flesh. So in the last days, those deceitful spirits will enter into the church. They'll draw people away and into deceitful schemes. Whether they do that through signs and wonders whether they do that through promises of material wealth or other earthly desires, whatever the method, the demons will attract a following. You might ask, well, where do people see these demons? How do they know about the demons? Well, it's not going to be directly the demon, of course. They're going to empower, perhaps even indwell, certain men and women for the purpose of influencing others and obtaining that following. That following will fall away, as Paul says, by following after these demons, not knowing they are demons, of course. When I say that they will fall away by following them, what I'm saying is they will enter into the churches that are led by these people, thinking they've arrived at the real thing, not knowing the difference. And in that sense, they've been dragged by a magnet into this black hole and they can't get out of it. So that's a falling away. Again, it's almost oxymoronic because you think of it as a disappearing of people. It's the opposite. It's the attracting of people who don't have the truth of what they claim. And then secondly, Paul says they will fall away by paying attention to the doctrines of these demons. And the difference here is that even after the deceitful demon has moved on and the person that they indwelled has passed away, their doctrines live on. The false gospels, the false teachings on spiritual gifts or the purposes of the law and the many other ways false doctrines have permeated the church today, they all got their start somewhere in the past. These are the doctrines invented by demons who have captivated many over the years through them. And these doctrines are perpetuated by men who themselves lack the truth, Paul says. In verse 2, Paul says, these false teachings will be carried forward by men who are hypocritical liars. They are liars because they preach false things. And they are hypocrites because they don't believe even what they preach. 
And that's very obvious when you look at something like the prosperity gospel, for example. Its core belief is that the more you give to God, the more you'll have. But you won't see the guys who are running that scam giving their money away. They don't believe what they're telling you to do, because they know it's not true. Now, you might wonder how a person could deceive so many so freely, and yet not experience some regret, some shame. Paul says these men won't. They are seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron. And to be seared means to mark something with heat. It's the idea, though, of a permanent scarring. So the conscience of an individual is permanently scarred. A permanently scarred conscience feels nothing, regrets nothing, cannot be made sensitive again. I believe we're living in the time that Paul predicted and that Jesus' letter to Laodicea described. Demons, with their false doctrines, have gained a foothold in the church. They use false teachers under their control. By their influence, they are sowing seeds of apostasy in the church. And left unchecked, these agents push out any message of the gospel or of who Christ truly is or how he saves. And in place of that, they offer false and useless teaching, which tickles ears. And if an unbeliever were to walk into the assembly of someone who is doing this, they find nothing to convict them, much less to guide them to the truth. And therefore, unbelief can flourish in that environment because it's not opposed to anything. There's nothing in the room that would call it out or oppose it. And you can already see the beginnings of this apostasy around you today. In many places around the world, congregational gatherings are met by pastors who offer no authentic Bible teaching. The gospel itself is under assault in many places because it's never taught. Or if it is taught, it's taught in a false way. And instead, congregations encounter men who peddle outright lies including false promises of miracles or wealth or healing or or other things. And as this trend grows, and based on Scripture, it's going to grow, it captures more and more believers, on the one hand, who then will suffer a lack of spiritual growth and maturity as a result. But it also attracts more and more unbelievers who are never converted by the false teaching and don't feel any discomfort with what they're experiencing because they're never called out to have to change. Now think about that trend, however. As you're bringing in unbelievers... And as the believers are being stunted, the believers will slowly die off under those circumstances. They're not going to reproduce. They're not going to be influential in creating the next generation of believers. And so, uh, and for those who are stronger in their faith, they will eventually leave in search of better teaching. So as the apostasy grows, the body becomes increasingly a body of unbelievers. And I think that's happening today. And the Spirit explicitly says it will happen, continuing especially into the end of the age. And this is a clear indication, I think, that you and I today are in that promised last days period. Maybe in the early stages of it, maybe quite a ways into it. But either way, we are in that period of time in which Paul says that there would be an apostasy in the church. Early periods of church history also had some apostasy, of course, and at times here and there across the world you can find it. The difference is, those earlier periods were always temporary. And they lack some of the key markers that will accompany the later days. Men of the last days will do a couple of things that will alert you, will alert us to know that we're there. And one of those is forbidding marriage. Another is calling their followers to abstain from certain foods. Now, those markers may not seem especially remarkable, but in reality, they're unique to our day. First, men will forbid marriage. Now, the Greek word there translated forbid, it actually means to hinder. That's the literal translation, to hinder marriage. Or you could say, to stand in the way of marriage. So these men will hinder godly marriage in one way or another. 
Secondly, these men will give a spiritual argument for abstaining from spiritual foods. Now, obviously, dietary restrictions were a favorite tactic of Judaizers. They would pressure Christians into adhering to Mosaic dietary rules. That was one of the things they said that Gentiles had to do to be truly saved. But remember, Paul told Timothy that the Spirit was speaking explicitly here about later times. So even though this this thought of dietary restrictions might have been a reference to present-day issues in Paul's time, and it very well could have been, Paul's obviously looking past his present. He's looking at the struggles of our day, not the struggles that they had against Judaizers. So the question remains, how are we going to recognize these signs as indications of the end? They don't seem particularly remarkable. Well, first, the institution of marriage has always been universally understood to be the lifelong union of a man and a woman. Certainly people engaged in perverted sexual practices from man's early history. But society did not debate the concept of marriage. They may have questioned the need for it. They may have questioned the sanctity of it, but they never questioned the definition of it until now. In the last century or so, especially in the last several decades, the institution itself has been assaulted in ways that have never been seen before. The concept of marriage is itself being hindered. Men and women now declare that God's definition of marriage is no longer the true definition of marriage, no longer the limits. And so people come together now in ways that are not truly marriage, not in God's eyes, yet they use the word. This is hindering true marriage. I should add also that if in some parts of the world now, marriage is, is almost absent, particularly in Scandinavia and Western Europe. You can go to places now where it's rare to find young couples going through the trouble of a marriage. It's just easier to shack up. They don't see the benefits of taking the next step. It's not one man's dictate that marriage be prohibited. That would be too obvious. The enemy doesn't work that obviously. It's in the slow creep of cultural change and societal degradation that allows the minds of the unbeliever to reach a point where this seems to be the more natural course. And over time, these men, through their influences in the church, through their liberal teaching, have influenced thinking such that now we reach the point that marriage is hindered. And this is unique. You would never find a parallel period in human history. Secondly, in the last days, we're told false teachers will advocate for abstaining from foods. Now, abstaining from a type of food or a set of foods is a common thing today, and it's not unique to today. Many of us abstain as a matter of personal preference or for physical reasons of one kind or another. There's no problem with that. But on the other hand, there's no basis in Scripture for a Christian to abstain from foods for spiritual reasons. Paul says in verse 4 that all foods are to be gratefully enjoyed by those who believe and, notice he says, know the truth. That's a separate requirement. Believe and know the truth, assuming we receive it thankfully, he says. Now, in this context, believing is believing the gospel. Obviously, among believers he's speaking. But to know the truth, then, on top of that, would have to refer to understanding that your salvation in Christ brings you liberty to eat all things. So there are those who believe but do not know the truth concerning this principle. So when the church sees false teachers advocating for abstaining as a matter of spiritual need, spiritual health, well, now you know you've entered into the last days. Notice Paul adds a qualifier that these things, these things we can eat, become good for us because they are sanctified by the word and prayer. What Paul's saying is that we can come to appreciate the goodness of what God has created for us when you study your Bible. In Scripture, you get to learn that God gave man not only every green plant, but every living thing as food as well. Furthermore, you come to know that you're not under law because you're under grace. And so in knowing those things, then secondly, Paul says you can acknowledge in thanks through prayer 
God's word, what he's done for us in the grace that he's offered us. By the way, I would add, this is a clear commandment in the New Testament for believers to engage in routine giving of thanks over your meals. Not ritualistically, but as a pattern of the heart. A general attitude that you should carry into every meal of thankfulness. Whether you literally say a prayer out loud or make everybody hold hands or whatever is irrelevant. It's to the attitude of the heart as you approach the food. But in the last days, such thankfulness will be absent, we're told, because false teachers do not teach nor even understand the word of God for that matter. And so as a result of their seared consciences, they substitute their own false teachings in place of what we know the Bible teaches. So they'll start to advocate that we should deny ourselves certain foods for certain spiritual reasons. Now, denying yourself food, or anything you enjoy for that matter, when done for spiritual reasons, is usually a false work of asceticism. Asceticism is the attempt to make oneself holy or holier through self-denial. It's a work of the flesh. So therefore it profits you nothing. Spiritually, You just lost out on something you might have liked. You didn't make God happier because he didn't ask you to do it. Now, in cases where you take on a fast, for example, or do something that is specifically designed for a period of time to be spiritually useful to your training, that's a different issue. We're talking here about someone who declares a certain food to be bad, off limits, spiritually inappropriate, forever. Those are misguided thoughts. But in the last days, it will become a favorite tactic of false teachers. We can already see in, in, for example, the early teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, they advocate vegetarianism as a spiritual requirement for benefits spiritually. It's a false teaching. And Mormonism is another example, right? So all the things they say you can't have because God doesn't allow it. These are the abstaining of foods which marks the last days. So how does abstaining from food come to be remarkable? How do we know that we're in the last days and someone wasn't 500 years ago when there was some kind of abstaining going on? Well, here's the difference. It's about degree and breadth. The opportunity for widespread abstaining is a relatively modern privilege. In the ancient times, especially in poor cultures, life itself depended on eating what was available and what was affordable. And so under those conditions, abstaining as a general practice on a widespread scale wasn't practical or possible. Therefore, we can know that we have entered into this last time's realm regarding the abstaining of foods because only now in history has it become commonplace and practical for someone to make this recommendation. Only now can a church say to people, broadly speaking, don't eat any of this or only eat this stuff because they expect everyone to have that flexibility. Not normally the case. It's only been possible in, say, the the past century or so. And also as a result of the wealth of the world reaching a point where you can make those kinds of trade-offs. So Paul tells Timothy, we are in the last day's church when you see these things coming. And he gives Timothy this insight, knowing that Timothy's 2,000 years ahead of the problem, so that Timothy will appoint proper leaders who maintain proper teaching, going back to what we just studied. But again, Timothy can't change the future. So we know the apostasy is coming. And certainly Paul isn't expecting Timothy to stop it, nor even us, for that matter. So what's the point in the exhortation? What Paul is doing is giving Timothy instructions that are intended to preserve the true believers who are in the midst of such things. It's not to change what's going on with the unbeliever. It's to make sure that the believer is protected from it. At least believers can be preserved in their godly walk and the truth, even as the rest of the crowd may be taken away by the lies. Which leads Paul to the next command to young Timothy, verse 6. He says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, 
Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. So first, Paul asked Timothy to point these things out to the brethren. And the things he's to point out, of course, are those negative trends that he just described, which tells us that though the end times are marked by these things, earlier times were not absent these things. So again, it's a difference in degree. So from time to time, you would have expected that Timothy in his role might have encountered men who came in advocating for some of these things or might have come in and teaching other false things. And so in a general way, Paul is commanding to Timothy, you're to point these things out. Now, many times believers don't recognize the signs of demons. They don't recognize false teaching. Uh, Therefore, they're going to depend on mature and learned elders and pastors to point out bad influences by comparing it to Scripture. That's the chief role of an elder. And, by the way, the enemy's pretty crafty. His lies can be very hard to spot, even for those who are learned. So only when you hold his claims up to the light of Scripture are his lies going to become apparent in many cases. But also notice Paul says to Timothy, point these things out. He does not tell Timothy to condemn these people or to silence others, etc. He simply says, just point them out. And that's a relatively mild response, given what was possible. Making note of bad teaching or of bad teachers is a commandment of Scripture. And doing so is sufficient to protect the believer. At the same time, you avoid slander or inciting unnecessary conflict or giving them undue attention. And I think we actually do a disservice to ourselves in the church when we start a campaign of sorts against what's going on in the camp of the enemy because at the end of the day, we either come off looking strident, unfair, overly critical, or at the very least, we give a lot of attention to something that we're really wishing would just go away. It's enough to point it out. To simply emphasize from Scripture why that's false, put it aside, give no attention to it anymore. And that's why Paul says that the pastor or the teacher or the the elder here who is vigilant, who is willing to point out false teaching, is to be considered a good servant of Christ. And that's high praise indeed when you consider that pleasing Christ is our highest goal. So as you confront false teaching... Remember, the goal is to please Christ, because I assure you that pointing these things out will not please the enemy, and usually won't be very popular with the crowd. So you should expect the enemy will retaliate when you take a stand for truth. It's not like the movies. You know, if you show up in the, in the church one day and you point out the false teaching that's taking place inside that church, don't expect the church staff to just lift you up on their shoulders and carry you around celebrating the fact that you pointed out false teaching was in the room. It's not been my experience. It works that way. Now, sometimes it's how you do it, but still, this is a mission of church leaders, which is why the church has to appoint strong, capable, godly leaders to protect true believers. In light of this issue now, you see all the more why chapter 3 is so important. Can you imagine appointing men who weren't strong in their character, who weren't willing to stand up, who weren't courageous, who didn't know the Bible? Where will they be on the day when this stuff starts happening in the church? Well, you look around at a lot of churches and you'll see exactly what's happening, and you also get a good reflection on the leadership. The task of protecting the flock from false teaching puts pressure on leadership, like nothing else they will do. It will test our willingness to seek the praises of God over the praises of men. It will test our patience to endure attacks of the enemy. It will test our commitment to the inerrancy and the authority of the Word of God when others challenge it. It will test our egos as we watch our congregations shrink while the apostate congregations around us are growing. That's why Paul says, Timothy... 
and all leaders must be constantly nourished on the words of faith and sound doctrine. Words of faith refers to the teaching of Scripture, to the Bible. So our leaders have to be constantly nourished by the Word of God. I think this is an interesting phrase. It would clearly deny the thought that if you've gone to seminary, graduated, and got your stamp of approval, you're kind of done with that, and now it's on to business. That's not constantly being nourished, obviously. Nor would it mean that someone who has achieved a certain rank in the church is done learning. Teachable hearts have to be there perpetually. So if they're going to succeed in defending the flock against the coming apostasy, they have to be constantly nourished in what the truth is. And constant nourishment means, literally, a daily emphasis on study for the purpose of growing and understanding. It's often shocking to me how many pastors I meet who are not engaged in any Bible study whatsoever. Because they don't preach the Bible from the pulpit, they're not engaged in active study for that purpose. They have no other teaching duties because they're too busy running a church, they say. And they certainly don't participate in home groups or Sunday schools and the like. They're above that. You quickly find out that they have no spiritual development happening in their own life through the Word, except in very minimal ways. That's a recipe for disaster for those they oversee. That daily practice of being in the Word of Truth, Paul says, then leads to an appreciation of sound doctrine. So the difference here is doctrine is the assembling of Scripture's teaching into principles that frame our thinking and frame our practice. So doctrine must come out of the text of Scripture if it is to be accurate, obviously. So Paul said to Timothy that he must be nourished by the Word, and then additionally, he must have an appreciation of sound doctrine. So leaders must study to learn, and then bring that learning to the church body in the form of doctrines to be followed. I'm not saying that a leader's study takes the place of individuals' study of Scripture. Of course not. But leaders study and learn so they may teach doctrine to us, so that then we are guided in our own study by what we've been given as proper doctrine. You know, a proper doctrine, for example, will prevent you from coming to a phrase like falling away and make the wrong conclusion that we're talking about believers who lose their salvation. Somebody would have already explained to you the doctrine of the way salvation comes and how it is eternal in its design. That would help us frame our understanding of another text. That's the point. So in contrast to, to feeding on Scripture, Paul says Timothy should have nothing to do with fables. I love the word fable here. It's very insightful. The Greek phrase, worldly fables and suitable for old women. Actually, in Greek, here's what it says. Who cares what that is? Here's what it says in Greek. Reject profane and old women's fables. Reject the profane fables and old women's fables. Now, let's look at the word fable first, because that's actually a very important word here. A fable is any fictitious story. Emphasis on story. It's a story because it tries to acquit itself against the objections that it knows are coming. It's like the scams you get by email that tell a story of some tragic overseas event and they need your financial help and they need to get this information from you. and They have this elaborate story and all of that detail seems to give the fable credibility, at least among those who are taken in by them. False teaching is usually presented in this way. It's striking to me how often, as I thought back on this, how often this is what I encounter. It's often in this story form. Fable, as as Paul calls it. And it attempts to address your doubts and prove itself in its own telling. So a common fable today, for example, it's not biblical, of course, not religious. But I'm just using this as an example because you may have heard of it. The conspiracy theories that say men never walked on the moon. That it was all just done in some studio somewhere, right? But when you hear the story, it never is that simple. We never walked on the moon. 
If they only said that, there would be not much interest in their story. But the fable is usually accompanied by explanations for the many objections that we're bound to raise over that concept. Right? They've already thought through all of the objections, and they're ready to lay the whole story out in a way that you're sitting, well, yeah, maybe that's true. You know, I never thought about it like that. You have no way to verify any of the claims. It's complete conjecture. You'd have no way to prove it one way or the other. It's just a story, but it's an artfully told story. That's exactly the way Satan works. He's the original conspiracy theorist. And I mean that literally. In the garden, he told the woman to eat of the tree. And when she objected, he had a story ready for her. And the story was, God didn't tell you the whole thing. There's some secret information. Let me share with you what's really going to happen. Paul says you were to reject those kinds of profane fables. Profane here refers to things that are offensive to the teaching of the Word of God. Contrary to the Word of God. Blasphemous. Frankly, just measure everything you're told by Scripture. Remain nourished by the Word so that you will be prepared to see the flaws in Satan's stories. And then, Paul says, reject the stories. Don't play with them. Don't allow others to entertain them. If you have pastoral responsibility or teaching authority, don't set up a debate between two people so that your congregation can see both sides. You have no obligation, according to Scripture, to be fair-minded and balanced in how you present opposing views when the Bible has only one view. And I mean that on anything, even on things that we might have healthy disagreements about in the church. If your church has a view, why in the world would it let the other view be taught? That's self-contradictory. That's hypocritical. You either have a view or you don't. So we want to reject those things, silence those things, and move on. We don't want to play with them. But that was the profane fables. The one that caught your attention, I know, was when he told Timothy to reject women's fables. Old women. The term women's fable here could mean a couple of things. First, Paul could simply have been using a colloquialism of his day. Women often work together in the chores of the home, so they could pass their time at work talking and sharing stories with one another because the work allowed for that. Men, on the other hand, worked in the fields typically or in the shops somewhere outside the home and typically alone or at a distance from other men. And so if they're going to have time to talk to each other, it meant stopping the work and going to the other person. And so that was a very infrequent and inefficient thing to do. And so this colloquialism developed in which a woman's fable is describing any kind of idle talk that's not worth serious consideration. So Paul could have been using it in that sense. Idle, nonsense talk that's not worth your time. But he might have also been alluding to the influence of women in this church in Ephesus, remember, who were participating with false teachers, we already learned, in spreading that false teaching. We learned this back in chapter 2. And so women in the church being deceived by some of these false teachers, and then under their influence, helping spread some of that bad teaching around in the church. Well, this is Paul's backhanded way of saying, don't listen to the women teaching all of these fables. Either way, we get the point. Another interesting thing, Paul counters not to do those things, but instead to, he says, discipline oneself for godliness. At first reading, it may seem like a non sequitur, like the two things don't have anything to do with each other, but not at all. Think about it. Discipline refers to the process of denying your flesh its desires, while at the same time building up your spiritual strength. They're like on opposite sides of a seesaw. So the flesh in our body is constantly warring against the will of God, which is given to us by the Spirit in us. Since we know that these fables, these false teachings, are instruments of the enemy, they're intended to bring corruption into the church, well, Paul wanted Timothy to be ready to resist those things when they come, to fight the battles that would have to ensue. And so in the same way that an athlete takes preparations to ensure that his body is ready for the difficulties of that contest, well, so must spiritual leaders discipline themselves spiritually to be prepared for spiritual battles.
And so Timothy had to be ready. So even if he had a firm grasp on doctrine, or even if he could still recite the Bible by memory, he could be taken down by Satan through some sin or some temptation left unchecked because he didn't discipline the flesh, because he wasn't prepared for that pretty secretary that got the new job at the church. There's so many stories like this of men uh, and women who have had positions of authority or positions of leadership in the church, and they had their act together in so many areas of life, but they didn't discipline the body enough in some respect. They weren't training for godliness. They underestimated the enemy. So disciplining yourself for godliness means taking weapons out of the enemy's hands. Why give your enemy, or your flesh for that matter, any more advantage than they already have in this struggle that we all have to endure? Discipline means taking steps in two ways. To constrain your flesh while strengthening your spirit. So constraining the flesh would mean setting up barriers to bad behavior, avoiding sources of temptation, taking proactive steps to contend with the flesh's desires, knowing that the fight will happen sooner or later, so taking preparations knowing it's coming. On the other side, strengthening the spirit means taking up habits of godliness. And you know most of them, I'm sure. Praying regularly, congregating with other believers, fasting on occasion, studying scripture, confessing sins to one another, etc. Doing both of those moves that teeter-totter, that seesaw, in the right direction and gets you in the best position to win the battles that are coming. And then in verses 8 and 9, Paul compares this process of spiritual discipline to one of physical discipline, to disciplining the body physically, to make a bigger point, obviously. But building up your body, he says, physically. And of course, we're talking here about somebody who goes through any kind of process of, of caring for the body, whether an athlete who prepares, a, a weightlifter who prepares, someone who's a yoga teacher, someone who's an aerobics teacher, anyone who has this interest in really taking on the task of disciplining the body. And anyone who's ever done that at any level knows that it's not easy. It's not easy for anyone. And it's constant. In fact, the, the more you work on it, the further you go, the harder it is to hold it there. You have to be that much more dedicated to all that's required to manage your body and to with, uh, withhold the urges to do things you know won't help your body, etc., etc. Paul says, yeah, that has profit. A little profit. Why is it a little? Well, having a nice body, meaning healthy, strong body, it's useful. It's worth pursuing to some degree. But in the end, your body dies. So any efforts you make at preserving it are fleeting at best. And so it's of little profit in that respect. If you invest too much time in preserving or building up your physical body or disciplining it in that sense, well, remember, all that effort goes in the grave when your body does. You've heard me say before, being healthy is just the slowest possible way to die. So it profits you, but in the big scheme of things, not a whole lot. There's a principle that underlies this whole analysis or this whole analogy that Paul's making. There's a principle. The principle is you only have so much time. You have limited time. So if you're going to put that time to the disciplining of your body, it's of little profit. But if you were to take some of that time, a good deal of it, and you start working on building up your godliness, he says, well, now that profits you in a major way because not only do you benefit in it now by a more sanctified life, which brings its own benefits, but you also see the benefits into eternity. But he's not advocating for all or none. He's moving the needle in the other direction. And in two ways, one of which I doubt many of us have thought about. One is just the profit of reward that, that Jesus teaches in many places. That is that our willingness to deny ourselves and serve Christ will bring recognition and reward, material reward in the kingdom. But the spiritual maturity you gain here, the spiritual strength, the spiritual degree of maturity that you gain here, will persist into the life you live in your new body, in the kingdom. 
This is an important principle in Scripture. That our pursuit of spiritual maturity and godliness now will profit us in the kingdom. Our degree of spiritual maturity follows us into the kingdom. And this is why. We will all live there without sin. And that alone will render us a very different person, obviously. But the removal of sin from you is from what part of you? Where is sin alive in you now? In the flesh only. The spirit in you is 100% sinless. Scripture says, the spirit given to you when you're born again never sins. It has no sin. It cannot sin. It never sins. The only source for sin in your existence right now is your body. That's why when your body goes to the grave and you get a new body, sin is gone with it. Because it's only in the flesh. Your spirit's already sinless. It knows what God wants. It wants to do what God wants. You just keep letting your body do what it wants instead. Romans 7, struggle. Romans 6 is Paul explaining the spiritual consequences of salvation. Should we still sin? He goes, may it never be. We've died to sin. Romans 7 is the physical consequences of being saved. Oh, wretched man that I am, why do I keep doing these things? So 6 is, your spirit is pure. 7 is, your body is corrupt. And you have a struggle between the two. And 8 is, well, who will set me free from this body of death? Praise be the Lord. There's now no condemnation. That in other words, even in the midst of the struggle, we've been saved from the penalty. We have no fear and a little tangent. But the point is that if we pursue godliness now... We're gaining something that never goes away. Or conversely, if we neglect our spiritual godliness now, then in the kingdom, that's fixed in cement. That's who we are for, for the kingdom. And our spiritual maturity, and here's the interesting part, our spiritual maturity is developed here as a result of the battles and tests we encounter in resisting our flesh. So your flesh is like a giant dumbbell strapped to your spirit. And the more you deal with it, the stronger you get so that you carry that strength into the kingdom. So Paul tells us, this is a trustworthy statement. Therefore, you can bet that Paul is right. And he's saying it in this sense. If you make the changes in your life that are based off of belief in what he said, you will not be disappointed that you believed him. You and I should be making the sacrifices necessary today to defend the truth and to resist the sin within us so that we're in a better position to defend the truth. And all of that effort will pay off, not only for the church, not only for those we are supervising or or guiding, but also for ourselves in the kingdom, both for us in reward and also in spirit. So you have good reason to do what Paul asked, not just for others' sake, but for your own, right? Let's pray. Uh, Father, I ask again for courage and for conviction. To walk in the confidence that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we have no fear. We have no worries. We need not think that because our life is imperfect or we haven't made every, mis- every correct decision that somehow all is lost and that all we have left is the disappointment of what you might present to us. Nothing like that is, is true, Father, because your scriptures tell us that that eye has not seen, nor has it entered into the heart of man all the things you have prepared for those you love, that you're, you're preparing a future for us that is beyond our imagination in glory and in joy. And yet, with that as well, Father, you've asked us to do as you've commanded now so that we will see the best of what's available for us later. And most importantly, so that we glorify you in the process. We ask, Lord, for the courage to do all those things. The awareness of when we live in the last days and the urgency that that should promote within our hearts and a personal dedication, rededication to battling the flesh, to strengthening our spirit, to serve you well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.